0: Welcome to Creation, Myth or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist, Richard Walker. Hello and welcome to today's show. Let me ask you a question. Which of these two views do you think is correct? Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, There is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Or perhaps this view. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The first view is, of course, that of atheist Carl Sagan. Is he correct? That there's nothing but matter and energy? And the only way to pretend there's any meaning to this life is for us to create it ourselves? The second quote, is from the book of Psalms, chapter 19. Is that view correct? Is there really a creator God? Were we really created in his image? And is there really evidence for God around us? The Bible claims there's evidence for God if we look around us and study. The book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, says the following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we are considering whether or not there really is evidence for God in the world around us, or whether what Paul wrote in the book of Romans is just utter nonsense. Last show, we concluded by discussing the enormous problems in formulating a materialistic theory for the origin of life, and that such scientists as Dean Kenyon, Emeritus Professor of Biology from San Francisco State University, who literally wrote the textbook, Biochemical Predestination, that was supposed to explain how life came from non-life, he himself had come to doubt even the possibility of it occurring based on what we're learning in genetics and cellular biology. Way back in 1984, he wrote the intro to a very good book, The Mystery of Life's Origin. And after discussing other issues, he mentioned the need for molecules with specific handedness. That is, left-handed amino acids, for example, where right-handed amino acids are not acceptable. When you create molecules of this type naturally, you always get both left and right handed molecules, but life requires explicitly left handed molecules. We discussed this on our September 4th show in more detail. Dean Kenyon wrote, After the prodigious effort that has gone into attempts to solve this great question over the years, we are really no nearer to a solution today than we were 30 years ago. So that was getting his attention. He concluded this introduction by discussing the need for the proper kind of information. Finally, in this brief summary for the reasons for my growing doubts that life on Earth could have begun spontaneously by purely chemical and physical means, there's the problem of the origin of genetic, that is, biologically relevant, information in biopolymers. No experimental system yet devised has provided the slightest clue as to how biologically meaningful sequences of subunits might have originated in prebiotic polynucleotides or polypeptides. Evidence for some degree of spontaneous sequence ordering has been published, but there's no indication whatsoever that the non-randomness is biologically significant. Until such evidence is forthcoming, one certainly cannot claim that the possibility of a naturalistic origin of life has been demonstrated. Now, in the almost 30 years since Dean Kenyon wrote that introduction, The problem has simply gotten worse, and there is no evidence forthcoming. Our increasing knowledge of the type of information content within any living cell, not just the DNA, but also elsewhere within the cell, some of which we have yet to even begin to locate, is a compelling argument for the existence of an intelligent source for this info. We'll discuss how this affected the world's most notorious atheist in a moment. We're discussing the evidence for the creator God that exists in the world around us. And now we're going to look at Antony Flew, who was considered the foremost atheist thinker of the 20th century. He was called the world's most notorious atheist and often debated against theists. Flew was the son of a Methodist minister and says that when he went to school, he was, quote, a committed and conscientious, if unenthusiastic, Christian. But then during his studies he began to question his faith and the problem of evil which we discussed on a previous show, how can there be suffering in the world if God is all powerful and all good, that question caused Flew to doubt the possibility of an omnipotent God. And he said that by the time he was 15 he considered himself an atheist. Interestingly, as a mature adult, he wrote that he reached the conclusion about the non-existence of God much too quickly much too easily, and for what later seemed to me the wrong reasons. That's a very interesting statement about his own conversion to atheism. At Oxford, Flew was part of the Socratic Club, which is a forum for debate between atheists and Christians, and it's the same club that C.S. Lewis was president of for over a decade. It was there that in 1950, Flew presented his paper, Theology and Falsification, that argued against theistic beliefs. That paper was still sparking reactions decades later. Then in 1961, he published God and Philosophy, which was an attempt to examine Christian theism. And in this book, he argued that the design, cosmological, and moral arguments for God's existence are invalid. So he wasn't convinced by those arguments at that point at all. While this book was influential in atheism. Flew himself now considers it to be, quote, a historical relic. And he later advocated the design and cosmological arguments as valid evidence for God's existence. However, long before he changed his worldview, in 1971, Flew published The Presumption of Atheism, in which he argued that it's inherently more rational to take atheism as a presumption at the outset of any debate regarding God's existence, And the burden of proof should be on the theist. However, as we've discussed in previous episodes, and as is included in a blog on my website, we've argued that atheism requires taking by faith several things which contradict the laws of science in the universe as it is. The first is that the universe itself came into being from nothing. The second is that non-living matter became living cells strictly by chemistry. And in addition, the notion that the type of specific complex information that exists within all life arose by undirected means without an intelligence cause is also contrary to the evidence. Flew seems to have been a very honest and open thinker who expressed what he was assuming and gave reasons for the conclusions he reached, precisely what Christians are asked to do, by the way. And he took place in debates with theists and was very cordial in doing so, In one debate in 1985 with philosopher and theologian Dr. Gary Habermas, they debated the proposition that Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, that he conquered death itself. Now, this debate was in Dallas, and there were 3,000 people in attendance, and there were two panels of experts to judge the debate from leading American universities. One panel had five philosophers who were asked to judge the content of the debate and also a panel of five professional debate judges who are asked to judge the quality of the arguments presented. Now, regarding content, four of the five on the Philosopher's panel voted that Habermas had won. That is, he made a stronger case for the resurrection actually occurring than Antony Flew's attempts to refute it. One of the five scored it a draw. The professional debate judges voted 3-2 to in favor of Habermas in terms of the quality of his arguments. I'd be curious to know how many of you are aware of the fact that debates like this used to occur between atheists and theists and that often the theists won. We're discussing the evidence in the world around us for the existence of God and the conversion of the world's most notorious atheist, Antony Flew, to a theist. In a debate at New York University in 2004, he shocked the atheist world by declaring that he, quote, now accepted the existence of a god, end quote. In that debate, he said he believed the origin of life points to a creative intelligence. Here's what he said. Almost entirely because of the DNA investigations, What I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown, by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. It's the enormous complexity of the number of elements and the enormous subtlety of the ways they work together. The meeting of these two parts at the right time by chance is simply minute. It is all a matter of the enormous complexity by which the results were achieved, which looked to me like the work of an intelligence. So even though an atheist, Antony Flew, was using the approach of inference to the best explanation in an attempt to deal with the data and decide where does the data really lead, this is precisely the investigative technique advocated by intelligent design advocates. And this is exactly the technique, that the academic community is trying to suppress and claim to be non-science. So notice that Antony Flew assumed atheism and believed it, but he still paid attention to the data around us. And he was still actually seeking the truth, rather than just trying to prop up his atheist belief, no matter what type of argument he had to make. That's really all can one ask in terms of an honest approach to trying to deal with the data. And that's precisely the type of discussion that academia is trying to prevent occurring in classrooms by suppressing intelligent design. Today, way too many atheists act like Sergeant Schultz when presented with evidence that challenges their worldview. I know nothing, nothing! Now, you've probably heard the argument that random chance is sufficient, that if you set enough monkeys at typewriters and let them type long enough you'd eventually get the works of Shakespeare out? Well, it's interesting to put some actual numbers to the argument and calculate some probabilities. The likelihood of getting one Shakespearean sonnet by chance typing like that is 1 in 10 to the 690th. Now, to give you some perspective on this number, it's estimated there are only 10 to the 80th particles in the entire universe. So, if every particle in the universe was a monkey and a typewriter and every second they typed out text the length of the sonnet, in trillions upon trillions of years, you still wouldn't have a single sonnet. Well, Flew paid attention to this argument, and he wrote, If the theorem won't work for a single sonnet, then of course it's simply absurd to suggest that the more elaborate feat of the origin of life could have been achieved by chance. That's an absolutely accurate assessment. Flew was also critical of Richard Dawkins' selfish gene idea, pointing out that natural selection does not positively produce anything, it only eliminates, or tends to eliminate, whatever is not competitive. He called Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, quote, a major exercise in popular mystification, and argued that Dawkins made the critical mistake of overlooking the fact that most observable traits in organisms are the result of the coding of many genes. So Flew was aware of the literature produced by the atheist Darwinist community, but he actually thought about the arguments they presented instead of swallowing them whole without consideration. He wrote that his belief in a God hinges on three specific aspects of nature. Quote, The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. The second is the dimension of life. The third is the very existence of nature. Well, let's think about the laws of nature. Every scientist must assume that nature acts in predictable, measurable ways. That's what allows science to be done. Agnostic scientist Paul Davies argued that, quote, science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. However, in and of itself, there is simply no reason why nature should follow laws. So the very existence of such laws and such orderly, repeatable behavior demands an explanation. And we've talked about this at some length. See our website for the blog Modern Science Was Developed Based Upon a Biblical Worldview. This has been noticed by other non-Christians as well. Lauren Isley wrote, The philosophy of experimental science began its discoveries and made use of its methods in the faith, not the knowledge, that it was dealing with a rational universe controlled by a creator who did not act upon whim nor interfere with the forces he had set in operation. It is surely one of the curious paradoxes of history that science, which professionally has little to do with faith, owes its origins to an act of faith that the universe can be rationally interpreted and that science today is sustained by that assumption. Antony Flew considered this and wrote that there are three questions that require answers. Where do the laws of physics come from? Why is it that we have these laws instead of some other set? How is it that we have a set of laws that drives featureless gases to life, consciousness, and intelligence? And he argued, along with many other scientists of the present and the past, that theism is the only serious answer to these questions. Now, every belief system takes a set of assumptions by faith as their starting point for all of their thinking. For theists, the existence of God is the beginning assumption. As an atheist, Flew took the universe and its physical laws as the beginning assumption. However, the discovery that the universe was not infinite, has not existed forever, threw a wrench into this whole assumption and belief system. If the universe has a beginning, then it's reasonable to assume something caused its beginning. Because it's more likely that God exists uncaused, Rather than the universe existing uncaused, it's logical to argue for the existence of God from the existence of the universe. That's the thinking that Antony Flew documented. See our blog entry, Materialists Must Believe in Miracles, for some additional arguments along these lines. Now when you look at it, not only does our universe follow finely tuned physical laws, but these laws appear to be finely tuned to enable life to exist. Remember the privileged planet we discussed in the last show? Now, since this situation is ridiculously unlikely, it's essentially impossible by random chance, the most common atheist answer is to simply assert that our universe is one of many others, the multiverse answer. It's interesting that atheists who refuse to believe in an unseen God, based supposedly on the lack of evidence for his existence, explain away the appearance of design by embracing the existence of an unknown number of other universes for which there is no evidence, nor even any effect of their existence. In any case, Flew argues that even if there were multiple universes, it would not solve the atheist dilemma. He wrote, Multiverse or not, we still have to come to terms with the origin of the laws of nature, and the only viable explanation here is the divine mind. Now, I neglected to mention earlier that Antony Flew documented his conversion from atheist to theist in a book whose cover I love. It says, there is no God, with the word no scratched out, and then an A put in its place. So now it says, there is a God, how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. That's a highly recommended read to those of you who are thinking about these things instead of sticking your head in the sand. There's also a most excellent review of it at creation.com. If you search for Review of There is a God, you'll find it. We're discussing the evidence for the existence of God in the world around us, and in particular how this evidence was witnessed and acknowledged by former atheist Anthony Flew in his conversion to theism. Lita Cosner's review at creation.com of Flew's book discusses his consideration of the origin of life problem. The existence of physical laws which allow life to survive is necessary but not sufficient by itself for the existence of life. The question of the origin of life became much more complex with the discovery of DNA, a molecule comprising letters that code for the instructions to build the machinery of life. A real vicious circle is that the instructions to build decoding machinery are themselves encoded on the DNA. That life is governed by a complex code leads to the question, as Flew wrote it, Can the origins of a system of coded chemistry be explained in a way that makes no appeal whatever to the kinds of facts that we otherwise invoke to explain codes and languages, systems of communication, the impress of ordinary words on the world of matter, he pointed out that natural selection can't explain the origin of first life. Ultimately, a vast amount of information is behind life, and in every case, information necessarily points to an intelligent source. So it's only reasonable that there be a source behind this information as well. Antony Flew's conversion to theism is an excellent example of why the evidence for intelligent design is suppressed in academia. That evidence is compelling, even to somebody like Antony Flew. Cosner's review continues, As an atheist, Flew struggled with the idea of an invisible, omnipresent person, and how such a person could be identified. However, Flew was making embodiment part of his definition of a person, which isn't justified. So earlier, Flew was requiring that in order to be a person, one must have a body. Philosopher Thomas Tracy defined persons simply as agents that are capable of acting intentionally. Although human persons are embodied, embodiment is not a necessary component for personhood. Flew admits that, quote, At the very least, the studies of Tracy and Leftow show that the idea of an omnipotent spirit is not intrinsically incoherent, if we see such a spirit as outside space and time that uniquely executes its intentions in the spatio-temporal continuum. Most interesting observation, because remember what the Apostle Paul wrote? What were the invisible attributes of God that is plain to those who look at the world around us? His eternal power and divine nature. Notice invisible attributes. But these invisible attributes are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So Flew recognized that the material realm, that which was made, points to the necessary existence of an omnipotent spirit that is not part of that material realm, that is outside space and time, but executes its intentions on the material realm. While Flew did not recognize this as the God of the Bible, The attributes he expressed are completely consistent with the God of the Bible. Flew identifies his God as the God of Aristotle, with the attributes of, quote, immutability, immateriality, omnipotence, omniscience, oneness, or indivisibility, perfect goodness, and necessary existence. And interestingly, he's adamant that his conversion to theism does not represent a paradigm shift, because his paradigm remains simply to follow the argument where it leads. Flew's book also has a couple of appendices that are quite interesting. The first one is written by his co-author Roy Varghese, and it's a critique of the New Atheism. The second appendix has a dialogue between Antony Flew and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright on the subject of the self-revelation of God in human history. And Flew begins with some very charitable remarks about Christianity, saying that, I think the Christian religion is the one religion that most clearly deserves to be honored and respected, whether or not its claim to be a divine revelation is true. There is nothing like the combination of a charismatic figure like Jesus and a first-class intellectual like St. Paul. If you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, this is the one to beat. So the evidence for God points to purposefulness and meaning in the universe, while National Lampoon and Deteriorata point to the opposite. You are a fluke of the universe. You You have no right to be here. And whether you can hear it or not, the universe is laughing behind your back. therefore make peace with your god whatever you conceive him to be hairy thunderer or cosmic muffin with all its hopes dreams promises and urban renewal the world continues to deteriorate give up you are Well remember hearing this while an atheist in high school and thinking they got it right life is truly meaningless and national lampoon is correct however i now realize i was completely wrong see creationmythormiracle.com for more info